0: While they kind of, while everyone kind of makes their way various places, if if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 9, but I actually open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to kind of work our way through uh, the Gospel of Luke coming forward so that we can see something big picture that will help us understand the particular place where we are this morning. Um, Get yourself opened up to there. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for this morning, Lord, for the chance to come and to gather together as a church, to worship alongside one another, to open up your word. God, I pray this morning that uh, you would use your word to teach us what it means to follow you. God, would you help our hearts to grasp what it is that Jesus says is following him? God, teach us what it is to deny ourselves. Teach us what it is to take up our cross and to follow you. God, by the power of your grace working inside of us, would we be people who joyfully take up those tasks as we walk with you daily. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So you've got Luke 1 opened up there. I want to ask a question. The last time you signed up for something, uh, you could have been buying tickets to something online. It could have been cell phone plan, internet, cable, whatever. And you got asked the question before you finalized that, have you read the terms and conditions? Were you a liar? That's the question few things make us a liar faster than that particular question because you know that you can't click next until you click yes but you also know that there are pages of terms and conditions and ain't nobody got time for that so we click yes and then you get a little ways down the road and if you're anything like me there's one particular company that I won't name who is wonderful about the rate that you sign up for initially when you sign up for their service, and then you click the terms and conditions, and then like six months later, you find out that your bill went up like $5, and you're like, this is not the rate I signed up for. And then a few months after that, it's gone up like five more dollars, so you make a phone call, and they say, well, it said on like page 37 of the terms and conditions that after a certain window of time, they could roll forward your price. So I didn't read the terms and conditions. Well, you clicked that you read them and buried in the fine print was something very important. What we're going to see this morning, this, this morning's passage is a very, very popular one. It's Peter making a confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ and it's Jesus then coming off the heels of that and saying, "If anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself daily, take a, or deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me." Jesus does not bury in the fine print for us what it means to walk in relationship and what it means to follow him. He puts it in bold type. He does not hide the fact that following him is a serious calling that comes with difficulty, that comes with a daily dying to yourself and denying yourself and a daily taking up the cross in order to follow him. And so I don't want to bury in the fine print this morning. This will not be a a super popular, comfortable, like get you fired up to go out and like live your best life kind of message. To suburban culture in 2021, the call to self-denial is a real challenge. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you've got Luke open in front of you, I want to show you kind of what Luke is doing and how we arrive in this, what is actually kind of the culminating chunk of the the first part of Luke's gospel. When you're reading in scripture, one thing that you can do, particularly when you're reading large chunks like a whole book or you're reading a large section of Luke like the first nine chapters would be, is to figure out what is recurring. What pops up kind of over and over again? Is there a certain word that you see a lot in an epistle? Is there a certain theme that you see a lot in a narrative section? And so just kind of walk through Luke with me really quickly. If you've got Luke 1 open, look at verse 4. This is Luke the writer saying his purpose for writing so that you may know the certainty of things uh, about which you have been instructed. That you might know with certainty who this Jesus is. So then in chapter 2, if you've, if you've got a flip or swipe or however it is that you would get there, verse 11, in the birth account of Jesus, you get an angel saying to some shepherds in a field, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah." the Lord. Chapter 2, Jesus has been born. His parents uh, take him to the temple. And in verse 25, they present him to the, the priest who is there. We're told this, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. A few verses later, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Chapter 4. Jesus is taken out into the wilderness, and he is tempted. He returns from that. We're told that the Holy Spirit is upon him. He goes to his hometown in Nazareth, and he sort of introduces his ministry and who he is at his hometown synagogue there. So in Luke four sixteen to 19, we're told this. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the, sa- or the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He reads from the book of Isaiah. This is what it says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He has anointed me. We'll come back to that. A little bit later in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's healing people. He's casting demons out of people. We're told this, Luke 4, 41, also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, you are the son of God. So peppered throughout the early part of Luke, there are these statements about who Jesus is. Then more recently, like starting in chapter eight, there's a rapid fire succession of people asking questions about who Jesus is disciples and Jesus are out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. This wild squall rolls in. They wake up Jesus. He calms that squall. Luke eight 25. We're told that the disciples were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him. Luke 9 verse 9. Last week, T.A. talked about this. Jesus takes the 12 apostles. He sends them out to do ministry. He gives them power over diseases and demons, and he sends them out to proclaim, we're told twice, to proclaim the gospel. Two times then, we're told that Herod heard about Jesus. And in verse nine, what's it say? Herod says, I beheaded John, but who is this I hear such things about? In today's passage, Luke 9, verse 18, Jesus is going to look at his disciples and we're told he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Then in verse 20, but you, he asked, who do you say that I am? What's the recurring theme in the first nine chapters of Luke? Who is this Jesus? Who is he? And so everything about the early chapters of Luke is establishing for us the identity of Jesus, presenting to us this savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The birth account attests to his divine nature, his teachings to his divine word, his miracles to his divine power, the identification statements to his unmistakable divinity. And all of that comes out of the the mouths of like all of creation. Angels are saying it. Demons are saying it. Humans are saying it. Storms are responding. Diseases are responding. Jesus himself is stating who he is. Today's passage hits the high point of that presentation and then Jesus immediately follows up with what it means to follow him. There's no burying it in the fine print. Like T.A. introduced last week, if you were here, if you listened on the podcast, Jesus is discipling his disciples, helping them understand who he is and what it means to follow him. And so this morning, what we're gonna see in Luke 9, 18 to 27, is that a confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross and comes with the certainty of a crown. We're actually gonna work with that statement over the next two weeks. Kind of the first two parts of it this week, the last part of it, next week. If you've got Luke chapter 9 open there in front of you, I'm going to read from verse 18 down to 27. And since this is a little bit of a shorter section, if you're able, would you stand while we read the word of God? Here's what Luke 9, starting in verse 18, says. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's how we're gonna work our way through this. Verses 18 through 20 are the account of Peter's confession. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus then clarifies what it means that he is Christ or the Messiah. Verse 23 is the bold print of what it means to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And then verse 24 kind of shifts us into the last piece of that, that there's this crown. And we'll take that this week, kind of start with that, but finish with it next week. Starts with a confession. Jesus is praying, we're told. And something that Luke does all throughout his gospel is that he shows us Jesus praying, and he often shows us Jesus praying before crucial moments in the gospel of Luke. What is Jesus doing before he calls his disciples? He's out praying. What is Jesus doing before he divides the or the or divides the five loaves and the two fish for the 500 people? He's praying. What is Jesus doing when he's arrested in the garden? He's praying. What is Jesus doing while he's on the cross? Father, forgive them. He's praying. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. What is Jesus doing before this peak moment confession? He's praying. And it's either in the middle of that time of prayer, it's right after that time of prayer, he looks over at his disciples and he says, who do the crowds say that I am? And so the disciples answer with three of the things that they've heard. Maybe these are like the most common things they hear people saying, that Jesus is maybe John the Baptist, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's one of the other ancient Old Testament prophets who's come back from the dead. And none of those things is disparaging or disrespectful about Jesus. In fact, all of those answers would be some, someone trying to wrestle with like who Jesus is and think highly of him. They respected John the Baptist. So thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist is saying, this is maybe this person that we respected. Elijah is one of the great figures of the Old Testament. So thinking that Jesus is maybe Elijah is incredibly respectful. Any of the Old Testament prophets were highly regarded by the Jewish people. So maybe he's one of those prophets come back. And the problem is not that they think little of Jesus, The crowds think highly of Jesus. The problem is they don't think highly enough about Jesus, which actually isn't that far off from the way a lot of people think about Jesus today. Some some people would be willing to say that Jesus was a real person. that's like kind. I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he existed, but that's not thinking highly enough about Jesus. Some people are willing to say that Jesus was a historically influential figure, There's a teacher at Liberty High School who teaches world history, and every year on the first day of class, he has his students get into groups and they make a list of who they think the five most influential people to ever live are. He will then post pictures of who his students said. Jesus is always on that list. Those kids may or may not be Christian in those groups, but they recognize he was influential over humanity you know, maybe more so than anybody else in all of human history. That's thinking highly of Jesus. It's not thinking highly enough of Jesus, though. Maybe someone thinks that Jesus was a a moral person or a good teacher. They would maybe say he was obviously some sort of important religious figure. Those are all attempts by people to say that Jesus is, like, worthy of our respect. But it falls short. It's not enough to just think highly of Jesus. We must think supremely of Jesus as all-sufficient Savior. And so Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, the crowds think you're someone worthy of some respect. Okay, but you, Jesus says. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers quickly, decisively. There are no wasted words. There's no extra verbiage. The CSB says God's Messiah Your translation might say the Messiah of God. Your translation might say the Christ. Those are all attempts at taking a Hebrew word and getting it into English. If your translation says the Christ, that's taking the Greek word and trying to get it into English. If your translation says the Messiah, that's taking the Hebrew word for Messiah and trying to get it directly into English without making the stopover in Greek. Messiah means anointed one. So when Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? Peter answers quickly, the anointed one of God. And that comes with all kinds of Old Testament kind of cultural baggage. But the Jewish people had been awaiting this anointed one. How did Jesus introduce himself when we walked our way through the gospel of Luke? In Luke 4, 16, the anointing of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind. He's the anointed one. Peter says, you're that guy. That confession is the culmination of Luke presenting to us who Jesus is. It started with angels in a field right at Jesus' birth, telling some shepherds that today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you. Who is the Messiah? The Lord. And then Luke builds that up from the beginning of Jesus's life all the way up to this point through the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the utterances of demons, the fleeing of diseases, the obedience of storms, the multiplying of food. And then it lands here with one of Jesus's apostles, his disciples saying, you're the anointed one of God. That's the high point of the first nine chapters of Luke. Luke says in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 4, I want you to know with certainty who this man Jesus is. The angels announce it. He's the Messiah, born in the city of David, a Savior. The Lord has come. You're given that demonstration. Jesus announces it about himself in Luke chapter 4. It builds up through all of his ministry until one of his disciples says, You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. I know that's who you are, Jesus. You're not just John the Baptist. You're not one of the other prophets come back. You're not Elijah. You're something more than that. You're the anointed one. And so the the first takeaway today is that it's not enough to just think highly about Jesus. We need to think supremely about Jesus as all-sufficient Savior. The second takeaway this morning is that notice that when Jesus asked who the crowds say that he is, and the disciples gave some of the crowds answers, Jesus didn't even give that any attention. He just immediately flipped the question around, who do you say that I am? And so the second big takeaway this morning is that it does not matter what someone else thinks about Jesus. What ultimately matters is what you think about Jesus you will not ride the coattails of anyone else's confession into eternity in the presence of the Lord you will stand there before the throne of God in your moment of judgment and you will not be able to say well my mom thought you were the Savior it will come down to you but you who do you say that I am everyone has got to answer that question for themselves we can't borrow the answer from someone else. Sometimes it's hard in the Bible to figure out when we read these passages, like where do we position ourselves? Who, who do I like, re- who am I supposed to resonate with in the passage? Which part of this is for me? Well, you can bank on with absolute certainty that you can take that question that Jesus asked the disciples and put yourself in their place. But you, who do you say that I am? And we all have to wrestle with that question. Eternity hinges on each individual's answer to that question. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke says it this way, it will not save us to talk or to speculate, to exchange opinions about the Gospel. The Christianity that saves is personally grasped, personally experienced, personally felt, and personally possessed. A confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross and comes with the certainty of a crown, a confession. That's where it starts. And on the heels of that correct answer, look what Jesus does. He doesn't even affirm that Peter has answered the question correctly. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God, you are the Christ, verse 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one saying it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Jesus, instead of saying anything about Peter's answer, says, okay, but here's what you need to know. And he clarifies two things. First and foremost, don't tell anyone, which is super confusing. Why would he say that? And then number two, understand that this isn't about to go the way that you think it is. A Jewish person at this time would have had all this sort of like background Old Testament kind of cultural understanding of who this anointed one would be. They thought he was going to be like David, who's going to ride in and restore this sort of like national glory to the nation of Israel. Bring the people back together, living in one place, worshiping together. Most importantly, kick the Romans out of here so that we can live and worship on our own. And Jesus says... That's not how this is going to go. So don't go and tell people that I'm the Messiah because you don't understand what that means. And if you just go out there and start announcing that, you're gonna whip them into this sort of fervor over the fact that they think that I'm going to be someone who like rides in on a white horse and saves the day for us politically. But here's what it actually means. I'm gonna be rejected, I'm going to die, and I'm going to resurrect on the third day. Clarification number one, Don't go tell anyone because you don't understand it. Clarification number two, here's how it's actually going to go. The Jewish leaders of our time are going to reject me. I will be killed and then I will be raised from the dead on the third day. Notice a couple of things in this. As as TA pointed out last week, he did a really good job of this. Jesus in this sort of transition time in the gospel of Luke is discipling the disciples part of that discipleship process is growing in an understanding of who Jesus is. And that's true for us too in our lifelong walk with him. Peter makes an absolutely true statement. You are the Messiah of God, the anointed one. And Jesus answers essentially, yes, I am, but understand that that means this. As we walk with Jesus and we get to know more about him, we're always increasingly learning more about him. Part of being a disciple of Jesus is continually growing in an accurate understanding of who Jesus is and what that means. And so we may know something of Jesus. We may know something of Jesus that is more than enough for our salvation, but it doesn't mean that we know everything there is to know. And so Jesus is helping the disciples understand who he is. Notice the second part here. Jesus knows exactly what is coming and he goes toward it voluntarily. The Pharisees don't force upon Jesus the cross. In just like two weeks from now, when we look at the end of Luke chapter nine, Jesus is going to make the decision to go toward that rejection and death and resurrection. No one forces it. No one coerces him into that. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternity past, decreed that this is what the Son would do, and Jesus accepts that joyfully and willingly and voluntarily, and he moves toward it. And that means that the cross and the resurrection just kind of hang over his entire life and ministry. So that's why we talk about Jesus casting out a demon or healing someone or raising someone from the dead. And we talk about it being a foreshadowing of what he's going to do at the cross and out of the grave. All of it hangs over Jesus's head. He knows that. So as he's doing these demonstrations of the kingdom, he's giving the world a picture of what this new reality is going to be like thanks to his sacrifice and his death and his resurrection. That just sort of hovers over Jesus' ministry the entire time. And then last, the disciples literally never get this. Look, look at what Jesus says. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. If you're familiar with the Gospels at all, the disciples are shocked when Jesus is arrested so shocked that they're swinging swords at the people that came to arrest him. The disciples are shocked when Jesus dies, and then they're shocked when Jesus resurrects. And there's Jesus saying, I told you what was going to happen. It's like watching the movie Titanic and being surprised when the boat sinks. What? Huh? Huh? I saw the musical Evita for the first time when I was in high school. It starts at her funeral, flashes back, progresses through like most of her life, and then ends at her death. She died. I'm bawling. My mom looks over at me. Tim, it started with her death. Like, why are you crying? Jesus, two times in the Gospel of Luke, is going to spell out very clearly for the disciples this is what is going to happen. I'm going to be rejected killed and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And then they're totally surprised every time those things happen. What's that mean for us? Jesus has made it clear what following him means. And yet we act totally surprised at times when the reality of those things comes into our lives. And so he says, if anybody's going to come after me, you're going to deny yourself take up your cross daily and follow me. And we get into these moments of life where we're like wrestling with our own sin and our own flesh and we act like we're shocked by the challenge of that. Jesus says, you'll be persecuted. We get into periods of life or seasons of time where it seems like the very presence of our faith has marshaled some force against us and we're like, what? Why is this happening? You no, know, like he told you that was what the reality was going to be. In fact, he encouraged you to count the cost of that Before, by faith, you received his grace for your salvation. In verse 23, the rubber meets the road on this whole deal. Not in fine print, but right off the top. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is all one conversation. That's why, even though your Bible probably splits this into two or three chunks, that's why we're working with this all-in-one sermon. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Here's what that means, Jesus says. I'm going to be rejected, killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And here's what that means for you. You're going to make this bold confession that I am the anointed one. Understand, I'm going to the cross, and you're going to carry one too. That's what it means to follow me. Theologians, pastors, Followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years have wrestled with Luke 9, 23 from the very beginning. Matthew Henry, the commentator, says self-denial is the first lesson in the school of Christ. John Calvin takes that one step further and says self-denial is the sum of the Christian life. And so a confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross. We talk about being people who are gospel-centered, that the truth of Jesus Christ living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, being resurrected, that that truth would form the center of who we are, which means when we make a confession of Christ, we're compelled toward a commitment to this sort of self-denying cross-carrying life. And that sort of self-denial is only possible if all of our satisfaction is found in the gospel. All of it. To build on T.A.'s message from last week, this kind of self-denial is only possible if we're utterly dependent upon Christ for all of our salvation, for all of our joy, for all of our satisfaction. Jesus is not asking his disciples, he's not asking us to muster up some sort of like ascetic, like monasticism or something. He's not looking for stoicism. He's asking his people to be so satisfied in him that denying themselves the things of the world would be a natural, joyful, voluntary task. Like see this in the very heart of the gospel. So in eternity past, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they decide that the Son is going to go to the cross and that in going to the cross, the glory of God would be magnified for the whole earth to see and humanity would have salvation from their sin available. And the Son willingly and joyfully denies himself the glory of heaven in order to take on flesh and step into the world. Why would he do that? Well, because he's existed for all of eternity in the perfect satisfaction of the relationship of the Trinity. And so that perfect satisfaction makes it so that he can deny himself heaven for a time in order to come to the earth. And now you place your faith in Jesus, and by grace you're saved. You're swept up into that perfect relationship with the Trinity, and our satisfaction is to be so tied up in that, that we could voluntarily deny ourselves the things of the world that our flesh grasps after. And so we're told in the New Testament that when we're saved by God's grace, we get this new nature, and that this new nature is satisfied, content, and dependent upon Jesus. Jesus who's all-sufficient to save, but Jesus who's also all-sufficient to satisfy the deepest desires that lurk down in the darkest corners of our hearts. And that satisfaction enables us to deny ourselves. That kind of satisfaction is what drives self-denial. So self-denial flows from the fact that our soul is satisfied in Christ. It's so important to Grasp that. We don't deny ourselves in order to gain heaven or to gain relationship with Jesus or to be saved. We deny ourselves because we've tasted the glory of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're so satisfied with that that we're compelled toward a life of self denial. We don't deny in order to gain Jesus, we deny because by grace we've been given Jesus. We've tasted and seen the beauty and the glory of God and the fullness of the gospel and the things of earth no longer hold us captive. And so Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross. When the disciples heard that, take up your cross, it would have been so shocking to them. It's not so shocking to us because we associate the cross with Jesus and his death in our place. The cross is this like comforting thing. But for them, it was a vile, revolting, fear-inducing uh, implement of capital punishment. And so Jesus says, take up your cross. And it, they would have naturally like revolted against that. Like, ugh, what are you asking me to do? And they're not going to get it. But Jesus is telling them in no uncertain terms. My work as Savior comes with rejection and death and resurrection. Your confession of me as that Savior compels you to a commitment to the cross. We need to resist the urge to make that idea trite. It's not uncommon for us to use like, oh, well, this is just the cross I have to bear in sort of a cavalier kind of way. Like, you live up here in the Northland. You work down in Johnson County. And so, I don't know if you have to make a drive or you used to have to make a drive down I-35 or 435 and you'd get stuck in traffic for like 45 minutes or something like that. And you'd be like, well, this is the cross I have to bear. That's not a cross. You're not like riding a donkey across the desert. You're in an air-conditioned vehicle driving to work because of a choice that you made to live in a certain place in relation to where you work. It's not picking up your cross to wake up with your child for the fifth time in the middle of the night. It's not taking up your cross to figure out how it is that you work alongside difficult co-workers. Learning how to live with people who are bothersome, that's not taking up your cross A surprise medical diagnosis, that's not taking up your cross. An undesirable season of life, managing life in this pandemic, that's not taking up our cross. Look, the cross is where Jesus went and he died. The cross is where your sin was put to death. The cross is the place where salvation was won on your behalf. The cross is not a picture of bearing the difficulties of life in a broken world. Picking up your cross and following Jesus is a call to putting to death the sin in your life. That's what picking up your cross is about. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He resurrected triumphant out of the grave over our sin. And now he has sent the Holy Spirit by his grace to empower victory over sin within his people. So you take up your cross, that's saying that when you're sitting in the traffic and you get cut off at seven miles per hour, like you weren't going anywhere in a hurry anyway, rather than getting impatient, you take up your cross and you put to death impatience inside of you. When your child is Crying in the middle of the night. Taking up your cross means denying yourself the desire you have for control and putting that to death. The difficult co-worker, that coworker isn't the cross. Our fleshly unkindness, our gossip, That's the cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Put that thing to death. The bothersome people aren't the cross. Our biting tongues, our propensity toward anger, an unexpected diagnosis or an undesirable season of life, those aren't the cross. Our desire for comfort, our thoughts about our plans for our lives, There's what you're taking up your cross in order to put to death. Managing life in a pandemic, that's not the cross. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus means putting to death our thoughts of rampant, often selfish individualism and autonomy. Joni Erickson Tata is an author. She's a speaker. She had a diving accident when she was 17 years old. She was paralyzed from the shoulders down. And reflecting on this verse and this passage, from a wheelchair, from 17 years old on, she says this, don't think that the cross is simply the wheelchair or the irritating job or the irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to your sin and live to God. When the disciples heard that they were supposed to take up their cross, it would have been vile and revolting and fear-inducing to them. And until we understand that sin inside of us is the most vile and revolting thing, we will not ever live a life of self-denial. We will not ever embrace the joy of taking up our cross and following Jesus. What's the bold type when it comes to following Christ? Self-denial. Self-denial. That's what it means to count the cost and make a confession of Christ as Savior. J.C. Ryle says it this way, a crucified Savior will never be content to have a self-pleasing, self-indulging people. His grace compels us. We've seen the beauty of Jesus and the glory of the gospel. And having received the grace of that by faith, that grace now at work inside of us compels us to commit to this kind of self-denying life. Look, one of the things that's hard about doing ministry in the suburbs is that you go to share the gospel with somebody in the suburbs, especially like a few generations now of suburban American living down the road. Not all, but the majority of us who live in the suburbs, we've never needed anything. Look, I grew up here. My parents aren't, like, overwhelmingly rich. We didn't grow up in some, like, wildly, you know, lavish lifestyle or something like that. But I never needed. And so you go to tell someone in the suburbs that they need a Savior. We have no construct for that. What do you mean, I need a Savior? And then you tell them that by taking Jesus as Savior, they need to deny themselves. What are you t- I've never denied myself anything. Like, I wanted new shoes. I got new shoes. I wanted to take a vacation. I took a vacation. the, The whole thing is so foreign to us. And yet, Jesus says this is the baseline for what it means to follow me. That you deny yourself, you take up the cross. And in the middle of our own sin and our own flesh and all of the kind of mundane or difficult parts of living life in a broken world, Jesus is loving enough to force us to look at that sin that we might be able to put it to death. That his power inside of us by the work of the Holy Spirit would crucify that thing. And so you read later in the New Testament, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The growth of that fruit within the life of a believer, that's the fruit of a life of self-denial. That's what the Holy Spirit brings to life inside of us as we deny our flesh, take up our cross, and put our sin to death. There is no patience without denying ourselves and putting to death our impatience. There is no kindness without denying ourselves and allowing the Holy Spirit to put to death within us our unkindness. There is no goodness without putting to death our desire for things that aren't so good. There is no gentleness without putting to death our harshness. There is no self-control without putting to death the fact that rather than being self-denying people, if left to our own devices, we want to be self-fulfilling people. So the gospel, rightly understood, is a free gift of God's grace, and we celebrate that. I mean, we ought to shout that from the rooftops. That God's grace is a free gift And that by faith, anybody can receive that gift, have their sin forgiven, and they will stand holy and righteous before God in their moment of judgment. Like, we should never shy away from that, but we also can't shy away from the bold print that comes after it. And that's that the gospel, rightly understood, compels a joyful giving of all that we are and all that we have. And the order of that is so important. The gospel, rightly understood, is a free gift of God's grace in the passage, I mean, this is the order that it goes in. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the, the anointed one of God. Okay, in that case, here's what that means. You've seen the grace of that. You've seen the goodness of that. You rejoice in the free gift of God's grace. In response to that, you're compelled toward this life of self-denial. And that means this. We need to stop trying to hand out crosses or call to self-denial people who have made no confession of Christ. When you get the order of this wrong, you're placing a weight on someone's soul that their soul is not meant to bear. You're telling them that if you would just deny enough, carry your cross enough, then you'll be saved. That's condemning people to hell because they'll never save themselves. When we do that, we take the beauty of the gospel and we turn it into this millstone that we hang around people's necks. Confession first, then we're compelled to a life of denying ourselves and taking up our cross. A confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross. And then there's this last part. and We're just going to kind of start with this today. We'll pick it up next week. Because what comes with that confession of Christ and that commitment to the cross is the certainty of a crown or the certainty of glory. Verses 24 and 27 kind of take this up, but it does it in the negative. And so we need to talk about the positive. Jesus says you try to save your life, you'll lose it. You try to gain the whole world, you'll forfeit yourself or your soul, depending on your translation. You deny Christ in this life, he'll deny you before the Father. Now the good news is the positive of those things are true. You lose your life In Christ, you'll find it in Christ. You deny the temptation of this world, you'll find satisfaction in Christ. You confess Christ before the world, he will confess you before the Father. I mean, think of the glory of that. Like you make this confession of Christ in this world and one day after you die, despite all of your sin and all of your brokenness, you're gonna stand before the throne of God in heaven and Jesus in that place is gonna confess that he knows and that he saved you. Oh my gosh, the beauty of that. And you're gonna be ushered into glory. You're gonna be glorified with this new body and you're gonna receive a crown that will not fade. And so yes, A confession of Christ compels a commitment to a life of self-denial and to a life of the cross, but it also comes with the certainty of glory. Oh, it's beautiful. We're gonna pick that up next week and talk more about it. I wanna end with some questions. Sometimes the application or the takeaway from a sermon is pretty straightforward because the passage commands that you do something. This one more kind of forces us into some self reflection. So these are questions that you can ask yourself. And the first one comes right out of the text. But you, who do you say that Jesus is? That's part, this is the most important question Is he Savior or is he not? Maybe you've already answered that question for yourself or maybe there, that question prompts a bunch of other questions inside of you and you need to get yourself kind of on a path toward answering that question for yourself. I cannot, I cannot like, ask strongly enough that you take seriously the quest to answer that question. But if you've already answered that one, then there are some questions that we need to like fearlessly and ruthlessly be willing to ask ourselves. For instance, is Jesus the hinge on which your life truly turns? Is Jesus, in his word, the decisive factor in your life? Is Jesus and what he offers the most desirable thing in your heart and in your mind? Is your satisfaction rooted in Christ and in the gospel or do you seek to find it other places? We need to be willing to ask ourselves honestly whether or not a grace-empowered, fruit-producing sort of self-denial marks our lives. Do we or do we not take up our cross? every day, and follow Jesus? Am I committed to following Jesus wherever that may lead me? And as we ask ourselves those questions and we kind of dig into our own heart to root those things out, I I want to encourage you to pray. Pray that the Lord's grace would give you a ruthless and fearless honesty with yourself. Pray that his grace would spur you forward where needed. Pray that the Lord's grace would put to death, put it to death, the sin in your life. Pray that the Lord's grace would bring the fruit of the Spirit to full bloom inside of you. Pray that the Lord's grace would sustain you as you bear your cross, that his grace would clarify where it is that Jesus is leading, that his grace would sustain you as you follow him to where it is that he is leading. Pray that his grace would remind your heart that because Jesus has fulfilled this work on our behalf, we can be compelled to a life of discipleship. And I also want to encourage you to pursue that whole process, answering those questions, praying those prayers, pursue it in community. Like it's, it's right on the surface of everything that Jesus does in the Gospels, but we very rarely talk about it. He's got these guys in a group. And he's discipling his disciples, not in isolation. And so pursue this sort of discipleship In this following of Jesus in your small group, pursue it in accountability relationships. Pursue it in a discipleship relationship. If you're married, pursue it in the context of your marriage. If you're not married, but you're looking for a spouse, look for someone that you can pursue this kind of life alongside until the day you die. If you're a parent, pursue this in your parenting. Put the gospel at the front of everything. Receive it joyfully as the free gift that it is. Let your soul find its ultimate satisfaction there and then allow the grace of that gospel to compel you toward self-denial, toward a life of taking up the cross, putting to death your sin and following Jesus. We're gonna end with a couple of songs here like we typically do. And the first one uh, is called All I Have is Christ. The second one is a song that we sing every once in a while. Uh, it's called Is He Worthy? And it's got like kind of a back and forth, questioning, question, kind of call and response, answer sort of thing. But it builds to this high point where we're saying He is. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. And it's very easy to sing that in a sort of intellectual sense that I I affirm the fact that Jesus is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory, but my question for us today to think about as we respond in worship this morning is that when you're staring your own sin the in the face, is he worthy of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him? Because that, Jesus says, is where discipleship begins. I pray that every single person in here is going to stand before the throne and they're going to declare that Jesus is absolutely worthy. They've been covered by his blood. But I also pray that in the daily life of this church and in the individuals of this church, that when we're looking at our own sin and our own brokenness and our own flesh, that in those moments we say, he's worthy for me to deny myself. Take up my cross and follow him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.